Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. And I am joined in very close proximity, as you can see, by Linda Gasparello, the co-host of the program. By listening to me, or if you've ever listened to me, you will know that I am or was once of the English persuasion. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Linda and I are going to talk about the tumultuous situation in the United Kingdom, not just England, but the, all of the British Isles. We, they, they have just lost the Queen, gotten the King. They have a new Prime Minister, an extraordinary new cabinet, and they are facing tremendous economic and energy problems as they move into the winter. Things are not all rosy in the UK. Linda and I have been glued to the television watching the extraordinary pageantry that probably only Britain can mount. I don't think any other country can come close in pure pageantry. The drills, the uniforms, the horses, the totality of another time, if you will. And if you want to be just a little bit snarky about it, you would say it is the greatest show on earth. I wonder where it all comes out. Linda? I wonder the same myself, Llewellyn. With, if we begin with just the change at the top, uh, the change from the monarch to the heir, Queen Elizabeth had such an incredible sense of duty. I think with Prince Charles will, uh, and now King Charles III, what we'll see is that duty but also he has a great sense of environmentalism. And that was brought about a lot by his interest in the poet William Blake, the British poet William Blake. England's green and pleasant land. This is what he envisions. I really do wonder though, how outspoken he's going to be and whether or not he and the new prime minister, Liz Truss will see eye to eye on climate change and on environmentalism. What, what I, do you think? Oh, I think they will. Uh, it's hard to know about Charles. We know a lot about, obviously, Elizabeth. Of course, I at least was in the position of watching her for all 70 years of her reign. And it all began before her reign in 1947 with her extraordinary speech dedicating her life, whether it be long or be short, whatever it was um, that she said uh, to service. And then she did it. She was a throwback to the best of the British Empire. And I say that very advisedly, the best of the British Empire with a huge sense of duty. And True, Llewellyn, but you know, we, she had the sense of duty, but we didn't really know Elizabeth's thoughts. We do know what King Charles thinks. He has written, he's spoken, he's always been outspoken on the things that matter to him. That wasn't true for Elizabeth. Well, we know, yes, we do know quite a lot about what he thinks. He's very much in favor of, uh, say, organic farming in uh, the environment, the preservation of beautiful buildings is against what is now seen as ugly modern architecture. So we know those parameters, but how he will be as king and how people will respond to him. The queen went up and down in popularity and then steadily, steadily upward as she aged to a point when she died that she was uh, unassailably one of the great monarchs and one of the great figures of, English, of British public life. 
nothing quite like it had been seen maybe since the death of Winston Churchill. And the, the, the morning is very real, but also the guard has changed. As the great ringing statement goes, the queen is dead, long live the king. And that is where we are after these days of mourning, after the funeral, after she is first, she'll be that she's on her way. And when she gets down from Scotland, we'll be lying in state in Westminster Abbey and then burial at Windsor, a huge castle up the Thames that is her favorite, uh, at least home in England, her home in Scotland, she also treasured. And then we're into an entirely new period. We also, as you said correctly, we have Liz Truss, the new prime minister. She started out quite far to the left. Her parents were always liberals. She started as a liberal Democrat, entered the Conservative Party, uh, and uh, sort of somewhat, uh, uh, you know, did what, what worked at the time. She was politically pragmatic. She rose to the top. She became foreign secretary, equivalent of, uh, uh, of, of Secretary of State. And she uh, has managed to be elected prime minister by her peers plus members of the Conservative Party. Now, this is very important. Normally, or until a certain point, only recently was it changed, only the members of the party in the parliament voted the prime minister. It was pretty simple. It was also easier to get rid of one because the procedure was you're in today and you're out tomorrow. Sorry, thank you, goodbye. Now, there was a change to try to make it more democratic and to try to involve the constituencies more in the selection of the prime minister. Personally, if you ask me, Linda, I think that was a mistake because it brings a more of a presidential quality to what should not be and was never conceived of as a presidential office. How it works is, there is a competition in the House of, among the members of the ruling party in the House of Commons, in this case, the Tory party, and each party has its own rules, they're quite different. Uh, there was a, a long list of people trying to become prime minister, a very interesting one because I think of eight, five were minorities unheard of in the Conservative Party, and we'll talk about that in a minute or two. Uh, and uh, she, she was in, along with, a man of, from a very well-known and very respected man, Rishi Sunak, who has, is of Indian ancestry. These were the two final choices. They went to the constituency party, which was only about, is only about 170 people. They campaigned as though it was a general election campaign and she won, but not by a lot. Inside of parliament, inside the Tory party in parliament, she was not especially favored. Sunak was much more popular. Well, it's interesting that uh, it, since she's been a conservative and uh, some people have said that she has been a standard bearer for the right because that is for free market, the free market nationalists tend to get, to, tend to get elected. I think that's kind of a cynical thing to say, she, but she does favor um, Margaret Thatcher's way of governing. Um, will she be a Margaret Thatcher? She's entering government at the time that, where things were very similar to the time Margaret Thatcher entered in 1979. 
where there were strikes, where there was inflation, where Margaret Thatcher had to tame these things. And at the same point, you know, we're looking at somebody who was part of the last government who is responsible for a lot of the things that are happening now. Well, that's right. Um, and there is nothing that she has said she's going to do that is particularly free market or, for that matter, particularly reflective of conservative orthodoxy. In fact, the Conservative Party seems to have abandoned many of its conservative principles, balanced budgets. She said she's going to pay an enormous amount, I mean, billions of dollars to keep down the cost of electricity for the people living in the United Kingdom. That is not a very conservative position. Uh, it's, it's a huge strain on the budget. It increases the British deficit enormously. She also has a fabulous, uh, diverse cabinet of the five top cabinet members, including herself, four, incredibly, four are minorities. And all of this, this rise of minorities in the Conservative Party has all happened within 15 years. Take this, for example, Quasi Quartan is Chancellor of the Exchequer, a big money man, a huge. His parents were born in Ghana, he was born in England, and he has a remarkably a posh background. He went to Eton, the incredible boys' school where most prime ministers, if they're men, tend to have been. And then he was a graduate of Cambridge. Uh, and then Suella Braverman, Home Secretary, another minority. James Cleverly, Foreign Secretary, maybe the most important, or at least on equal pegging with the Chancellor of Exchequer, another minority. His mother was Sierra, from Sierra Leone. In the contest to be prime minister, there were a lot of minorities, including Kimmy Badenoch, who is another minority from Africa, an extraordinary movement in English politics, an extraordinary recognition of how things have changed and how Britain has gone from being a country of traditional inhabitants to being a multi-ethnic a multi-ethnic, multicultural country, which uh, has happened. And if you go to Britain, you will see it everywhere. I would like to go back to my comment about the fact that that Liz Trust has fashioned herself as as a Margaret Thatcher. Well, I knew, I knew Margaret Thatcher, and I don't think there's any similarity whatsoever besides their gender. She may think uh, that you know, she is going to be a, a Margaret Thatcher, uh, maybe a mock Margaret Thatcher. You know, is she the good turtle soup or is she going to be the mock? But I'd like to read to you something that Max Hastings wrote, who is one of your favorite editors, was a former- No, he's one of my favorite writers. I never, <laughs> I never worked for him. I've worked for many English newspapers, right. but I've never worked for Max Hastings. I was already in Scots. Well, a great, a great journalist, a great historian, Max That's Hastings. That's true, true, okay. He has written- He's also called by staff Hitler Hastings. I didn't push that in there for the hell of it. He has written recently that although the Iron Lady talked tough, a surprising theme of her premiership was, was its caution. She delayed picking most of the big fights until she was sure of winning them. She never would have done as Johnson, that's Boris Johnson, and now Liz Truss had done, appointing a cabinet of loyalists, heedless of abilities. Well, uh, that is uh, exactly, she's not similar. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher knew where she was going. She was a tough lady. 
She also had a kind of sign, and I'm glad to say that I was able to see it. And I think you were on one occasion, and I was on several occasions. Yes. But primarily, she was a very tough woman with a great sense of destiny and of Britain's destiny and of what should be done and shouldn't be done. And she was tough, tough, tough. Uh, her famous uh, remark was, the lady's not for turning, and she was not for turning. She stood up against the Irish Republican Army. She stood up against the seemingly invincible trade union movement in Britain and beat it back very successfully, took Britain from being the sick man of Europe to being uh, uh, the leading power in Europe. She railed against the European Union, but did not move to take Britain out of it, which now is turning out Brexit for short, not maybe the wisest move ever made under the Cameron government. Back to the idea of this is a new prime minister. She's got an inexperienced cabinet. She is facing some of the greatest headwinds Britain has had since the end of World War II. And again, as Michael, uh, as, as Max Hastings pointed out, she did not ask two of the most experienced members of, of Boris Johnson's cabinet, Rishi Sunak and, and uh, Michael Gove, to come back into her cabinet. I'm really wondering how she's, she's known to be somebody that has radical, uh, makes radical decisions. I'm wondering if this is best for Britain. She's also, I don't know, I don't think we can say, and I'm certainly not going to say it on this program, but the earlier indications are that she has flip-flopped on a number of issues over time and quite a lot during the actual election campaign that brought her to the premiership and to residence in number 10 Downing Street. What is she facing? Well, she's facing an energy crisis that she cannot be blamed for, but there is blame to go around. It is not just the vicious war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of an innocent country, and their use of gas and to a lesser extent oil as a weapon, the weaponizing of, of, of the winter almost. Putin must have gone back to the Tsar who said, my two greatest generals are January and February because he has every intention of starving Europe of gas. But I said Britain, uh, there's, there's blame to go. Uh, Britain has dawdled. Winston Churchill said, a decision not made is nonetheless a decision. Well, uh, they decided to delay putting in a nuclear power plant. They didn't build storage for their national natural gas. They thought natural gas in the in North Sea would last longer than it did it peak. There were signs it was peaking, and they relied on wind as the new um, magic fuel for Britain. And it's a very windy place most of the time. The wind is capricious. Last fall or autumn, as Ritz would say, and the wind, which always blows in the North Sea, disasters were shaping, didn't blow. There was a wind drought, and that started a cumulative energy shortage, the burning of more gas, pulling it out of storage. It is right at the end of a long pipeline and port, some from Russia, uh, some from Norway, as its own resources have declined. This winter, the Brits are facing 
energy bills between six and 10 times the normal price. And that's what the prime minister is moving to try to ameliorate that impact, which is hugely inflationary and possibly beyond many families, wages are not universally high by any means in the United Kingdom and where it could have been avoided. Well, have... Can we talk about energy just for a moment? Yeah, sure. and, when, and some of the things that, that Liz Truss has, has proposed, fracking, for instance. This is a technology that has been banned in Britain since, since well, it's a moratorium since 2019. There is no geological survey. There are no good numbers on whether or not Britain has got enough, enough gas. Enough shale. Enough shale gas. Um, fracking frees gas and oil trapped in shale. Uh, and you put down a, a hole, you put another hole that way, and you fill the secondary hole yes. with, with a fluid and force the gas out of it or the oil. It's not clear that this is going to make much difference. No, and she, she had said that she would basically, if it was a popular thing, she would want to hear that from the British people. But the British people, the last time uh, fracking was experimented with, it caused an earthquake. They said they didn't want it. They overwhelmingly do not want it. Well, you've got a so problem. So, what position does that leave? Well, well, you've got a larger problem there, a problem which is getting more attention, and that is what uh, one newspaper has called the votocracy or vetoocracy. And that is, it is very difficult to do anything in the United Kingdom. There are some old nuclear power plants, the last newish one of an American design was built and uh, went into service in 1995. They have delayed in making the decision. They've offered it around. They couldn't find the financing here. The Chinese were going. And of course, there's this constant public opposition to doing anything. And it is now a national crisis. The, the Britain, they did great things. And they're not burning coal anymore. All the famous coal, all of that coal that was produced they are now burning less coal. There are three very small mines operating, less coal than during the Industrial Revolution. They put a huge confidence, about 26%, if I got my numbers right, of their fuel is coming from wind. Uh, they are moving heavily to more wind. Uh, the big fuel is natural gas these days, a very small percentage from coal. And, uh, you know, it's not a very reliable place for solar. They have not gone heavily into solar. They have some, but the big renewable effort has been with wind and they didn't move fast enough on any of the fuels. Now they're trying to build up their nuclear fleet, retire the old nuclear reactors. And Scotland, a critical place in this energy equation, has ruled out nuclear altogether, like Germany, rather short-sightedly as we now see Right. What do you think? I think they're going to be a very, very difficult winter. It is for so many reasons. First of all, the cost of living has gone way above uh, uh, 10% in July for the first time in 40 years. Then the poor economy. Uh, it's just not coming out of, of the pandemic as, as it should. Uh, you've got um, public services that are falling apart. Well, the National Health Service, which is the pride of Britain, and right. it has worked so well since 1948, 
it's now sort of gummed up and not working very well at all, long delays. Staff you know, shortages. All of that. Right. Uh, and uh, trust, the trust administration, right off the bat, is facing something we haven't seen in Britain since before Margaret Thatcher came to power, and that is a lot of strikes, which they Absolutely. like to describe euphemistically as industrial, industrial action. And, uh, <clears throat> but it's our transportation workers, journalists on strike, lawyers, refuse workers, uh, postal workers, they've all gone on strikes. Uh, and these are going to continue, apparently. Well, uh, it's a very difficult time. But I would say, Linda, the Brits have always been a very creative, imaginative people. Um, some of the things they've done in wartime have been astounding. And I'm sure they'll come through this. And maybe we'll see some inventions, some new dimensions in the energy sector that we have not imagined. But by and large, they have reaped the price of not selling, of hoping, as they say in the theater, it'll be all right on the night. Well, the night is the winter that is coming up and they have inadequate energy supplies. Or if they sneak by, the cost is out of sight. And they're looking at all the remedies you can imagine special taxation, all that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, it's, not a, it's not a pretty picture at all. I think I'm, the other thing we haven't mentioned yet is uh, the international scene. And here it's a uh, very complicated uh, global situation. We've got Ukraine that's still under the Russian invasion. We've got China is threatening Taiwan. And then there's just the mess of Brexit. An absolute mess. Well, and Brexit's, she is not endearing herself to the European continent. Well, this um, is part of the flip-flop. She was for remaining in Europe, then she was for Brexit, and then when she was foreign secretary, she did not endear herself whatsoever uh, to Europe. She said some rather unfortunate and undiplomatic things and showed a surprising ignorance about uh, and some geographic matters and people get very upset if you get their geography wrong or simply don't suggest you know it. If you right. somebody said you knew, I went from New York uh, one afternoon to California, you wouldn't respect that person. Well, she had a few bloopers of that magnitude, so that doesn't go down too well. No, not at all. Um, and, the, and then you have the war in Ukraine. Uh, Boris Johnson, the outgoing or the now gone prime minister, pledged wholeheartedly British support for the Ukrainians in a way that it's not clear how it was going to be delivered, uh, but left no negotiating room at a time when the Ukrainians are winning somewhat on the ground, and it looks, therefore, that it may be opportune for a political settlement. In the end, all wars end up in a settlement of some kind either surrender or more often some kind of political settlement, which has to come in Europe. You can't really have this war extend forever. The Ukrainians will not hold up. And the Russians are hurting too, but in different ways. There are also questions for ourselves about the effect of uh, sanctions, whether they have worked, whether they're a good idea. You, you talk a lot about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, she said sanctions don't work. She was quite opposed to Absolutely. And um, uh, anything you do to an economy, any act of government in an economy distorts something. 
it's not a free action. It's, you know, for whom the bell tolls. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sanctions have other effects. Uh, she's also got a very soon deal with Northern Ireland and the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol. It's very complicated, so I won't get into it in too much depth. It's the weeds. But what it is, is you've got Northern Ireland, part of Britain, uh, sitting in Ireland or surrounded by the Irish Republic, which is part of the European Union, which means you've got a lot of border. And because it's so sensitive up there, the last thing you want is checkpoints and searchlights or any of that exactly. stuff. Exactly. And yeah. because and that situation. the, the yeah. Irish have really loved the free flow between you and I have done it. It's easy. It's, it's just you use euros on one side and you use pounds on the other. Right. Uh, but no, that's different now. And so the various schemes uh, and um, the Boris administration, Boris Johnson administration, wanted to radically alter the agreement with Europe called the Northern Ireland Protocol and uh, change it to something more favorable to Britain to remove congestion, but less favorable to the European Union. And the Europeans have said, no, no, no. no. And the Irish, who I have to deal with, is, have really been upset because, by and large, one of the, the extraordinary things about the British Isles is how well Ireland and Britain get on nowadays. Uh, not so in 1922, but nowadays extremely well. Well, I think maybe we can go to maybe a larger issue that you and I always talk about, which is the deficit of leadership these days. And there's a pretty foolish proverb that I know Max Hastings cited in his piece saying, um, come at the hour, come at the man. Um, but there are very few have men have come at the hour. Abraham Lincoln was one, FDR was one, and Liz Trust does not seem to be come at the hour, come at the woman. Well, but uh, this is true in many, many places across the world. Show me where in Europe we've got a real deficit, and and some would say in the United States we have a deficit. I would say we have a deficit of leadership in the United States, uh, but when I look at Europe. It's just extraordinary that there is no outstanding effect. The closest, who is often reviled, is Emmanuel Macron in uh, France. He at least uh, stands up in front and says what he thinks should be done. Uh, we haven't seen that. We thought, had hopes for Boris Johnson because he's such a marvelous, grandiloquent figure and he talks so well. He talks as well as Churchill, but he didn't act so well. He was no Churchill. And he, his, now it's generally conceded his administration, his government in, in Britain was shambolic, is the word I've read in several newspapers. So I'm prepared to accept not being there on the spot that it was shambolic. Well, I think we're out of time. We are out of time. <laughs> if you're thinking of going to Britain, I think I'll be very glad to, to see you this winter. But uh, take your woolies with you, won't you? That's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, long live the King. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Subscribe and take us with you in your